It really called into question the current model of a lot of Spanish TV. So they're starting at the gutter. La Portada podcast with Simon Hunter and Lily Mayers. We are here to read all of the Spanish news so that you don't have to. It's crazy. I've just been watching the Spanish media ecosystem fall apart at the seams. Let's delete me talking about my wife. Yeah. I just want to talk about the, all the optics. Let's talk the drama, let's talk the drama. <laughs> my apologies to any drunk Brits out there who may have been offended. Our Twitter thread is cursed. I mean, yeah, go back and listen to our coverage last no, no, week. Don't, no, <laughs> ¿Listos? Sí. Vamos allá. Buenos dias, buenas tardes y buenas noches. Whenever and wherever you are listening, you are most welcome to La Portada, which is coming to you live on tape from Madrid. My name is Simon Hunter. I'm a British journalist based in Madrid, and I am here with my co-host, Lily Mayers, an Australian journalist also living in the Spanish capital. And we are here talking to you direct into your ears because we love Spain and we want to bring you the best stories, news and interviews from this fantastic country. Now, we've been away a while. Oh, so it's been a back, while. Lily. Hello. It's Hello, great Simon. Hello, listeners. It is. It's great to be back in your living room on a Friday for a recording sesh. Yeah. We definitely leaned into our summer break, didn't we? Yeah, we certainly made the most of it. I'm so. I do apologise to the listeners who've been saying, please come back, please come back, that we, we were away for longer than we said. But, uh, yeah, a lot's been going on. Um, tell us, Lily, what's your news? How was your summer? Oh, it was great. I went to Portugal and I went to Javier in the south southeast of Spain twice, if you can believe it. Um, Yeah, it was great. And uh, lots of of sea, lots of sailing and swimming and sun and food. And I had a friend come over from Australia for the first time, which was amazing. The first time since I've been here. Were you surprised in Portugal? Yes, the Portugal trip was a big surprise for our friend Mo, who's actually a very big listener of the show, and his girlfriend Caro. Uh, Actually, on the last episode of last season, you asked me where I was going. And I knew that they would be listening, and I couldn't say it so I just <laughs> lied and I said Italy but no Port- Portugal was great and I discovered green wine green wine Tell yeah me more well it's it's kind of like cava I guess like a still cava it was delicious wow De- way better than white wine I've never heard I've never heard of that uh, and Amazing. a green wine sangria was just one of my favorite discoveries oh, how was your break I know you were working through a lot of the end part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a big lull, you know, as the life of a freelancer, which I'm still getting used to. I had a big lull in the summer, but we went to Benidorm. Mm-hmm. We had a Don't very good time. There. Yeah, no, no, it was good. It was just what everyone said. It was older Spanish folk and a certain type of British tourist. And in fact, we encountered a, a big group of those British tourists when we got there. We went straight up to the rooftop bar and there was a big group of Brits. Yeah. No, well, we just got there. We'd had a long journey. It was before lunch. We were like, right, let's have a drink. But there was a group of Brits who were there, Mm. you know, getting Mm. on it. They were all very pink and suntanned and had lots of (laughs) tattoos and all had their shirts off. So we saw them. So And then we went downstairs and we had lunch. And then we finished lunch and me and my sons got in the lift and there happened to be three of these guys that we'd seen up on the top of the roof before. And this is where having a bilingual, having bilingual children can get Mm. you into trouble because the lift doors closed about two seconds past and Ollie turned to me and said to me very loudly in English, Papa, 
Why does it smell in here of farts? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so I was just like, right, uh, swallow me up, please. It was so embarrassing, but very, very Jesus. funny. And then yeah, and then we went to Cadiz, which was amazing. We went up to the fiestas in my wife's village in Leon, and then and then uh, as we usually did, we went to the UK for a couple of weeks. But we were in the midst of a heat wave, um, so that was interesting. And then yeah, and then September arrived, and my world just was went completely mad with the death of uh, Queen Elizabeth II. Mm. Uh, the world just went crazy. I ended up doing 13 media appearances in about two weeks. They were nearly all live Spanish TV, which was pretty... Um, Grueling. Yeah, it was pretty terrifying. Mm. I mean, the really big one was the Lazos de Sangre programme, which is on primetime TVE. But of course, primetime in Spain is starting at half past <laughs> ten at night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I had to get there at 7pm. They put makeup on you at 7pm and then you kind of had to sit, sit sweat around. sweat that off well yeah, before. <laughs> absolutely. I was Mr. Shiny Face before I'd even got, you know, anywhere near the set. Uh, and I was on this panel of, you know, eminent, like really, really mm. senior, you know, That's experienced scary. Spanish journalists. It was pretty terrifying. I did nearly sort of run away. Before she, <laughs> one of my friends from El País was on the panel and she was very, very nice to me uh, and kept throwing it over to me because on those programmes, it's a bit like sitting down to lunch with my wife's family you really have to sharpen mm. your elbows and and make you know have to push yourself into the conversation because otherwise you will just sit there right. and not say anything so you kind of have to go along everyone's there like vying for attention because everyone has to sort of earn their keep it was really Jeez. yeah it was really quite an experience but it, it was great fun baptism I, by fire for yeah you, really. totally yeah and I'm just you know I think now I'm probably going to be there one of their go-to giddies you know whenever anything mm-hmm. anything happens in the UK and look what's happening in the UK yeah <laughs> Uh, a cool, you know, cool be coming soon. Yeah, absolutely. And as for work, yeah, you, I'm still working at the Times. I'm doing cover at the Times, so you can check out my stories there. And also, I'm doing a couple of stories a day uh, at the Olive Press. Now, both of those are behind a paywall, unfortunately, but I do encourage you to sign up and read my stuff because I'm having a tremendous amount of fun working at those two media outlets and uh, yeah, getting out the stories um, that uh, interest people, not just in Spain but uh, all over the world. We've been doing some really good stories there, so yeah, hopefully you can check it out now speaking of stories there's been oh my goodness so many stories uh, that we've missed over these last couple of months I mean in relation with the Queen mm. I guess here the big scandal was about uh, you know who was the emeritus king Juan Carlos going to sit next to at the funeral he ended up sitting next to Queen Letitia who had yeah. a face like thunder yeah, yeah. all through God, the funeral those shots spoke thousands of words <laughs> absolutely no it was it was very very funny um, and thank you to everyone who got in touch over the summer especially those who were asking us to come back our good friend Stephen Bergen from The Guardian got in touch and suggested that I slow down man when I'm, when I'm talking and it's true listening back to the podcasts I do speak, we get excited we do speak very fast so I apologise for that especially for our Spanish listeners <laughs> if we've been talking too quick we'll try and slow down a little bit yeah and thank you for everyone for wanting more and getting in touch and yeah the delay gave us as much anxiety as it seemed to give you so so don't worry and we're very happy to be back absolutely and one of our podcast heroes got in touch before the summer to ask when do we start to charge <laughs> or when do we start to put ads on the podcast so the time has come to try to make a bit of income from the pod otherwise obviously long term we won't be able to carry on so we are in the process of setting up patreon moving the uh, episodes over to there you can already head to our page if you want to support us it's patreon.com forward slash la portada pod we'll put that on our twitter thread obviously of uh, 
uh, of um, stuff from this week's episode. We are not asking for much, just for each of you who are listening to buy me and Lily a relaxing cup of café con leche in Plaza Mayor. If it, <laughs> if everyone who is listening signs up and pledges just three fifty a month, we'll be able to carry on with the pod long term. Patreon subscribers will get the pod a few days early. It'll have bonus content and it'll be an ad free experience, which you know overall is quite a package for just the price of a relaxing cup of café con leche in Plaza Mayor. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> Leave Annie Bottle alone. She was doing her best. <laughs> so let us, without further ado, move on to our first story this week, which is the ongoing driving license debacle. So Lily, take it away. Tell us what on earth is going on here. It's a topic we touched on last season briefly, but it's still very much ongoing, this post-Brexit British driver's licence deadlock. Since May 1st of this year, hundreds to thousands of UK, Irish and even Spanish nationals haven't been able to use their cars if they failed to apply to exchange their UK driver's licence for Spanish ones before the 2020 Brexit deadline. For months, those drivers have been told that they would be able to exchange their licences once British and Spanish authorities reached a new agreement on post-Brexit driver data provisions. But now in September, they're still waiting. Before Brexit, the data on UK vehicle ownership was shared with other EU member states. That access was then cut off with Brexit, and now Spain's requesting... The, ac- uh, the data of registered drivers who've committed traffic offences in Spain in order to exchange the permits. What's holding the negotiations up, though, is that the British authorities would prefer to keep the two issues separate. In the meantime, Brit drivers in Spain have been told they can either take a new driving test or just not drive while they wait for the agreement. This week, the British ambassador to Spain, Hugh Elliott, had this to say in a Twitter video. So where are we? Well, in summary, I'd say we're genuinely still making progress. I get how frustrating it is to hear that, but we are making progress. We're in discussions almost daily about the outstanding issues, and I remain very optimistic that we will reach an agreement and hope that it will be soon. But as I say, I can't give you a definitive timetable. So, Simon, why are we still seeing this stalemate so many months on? Well, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? I mean, no one can really give a straight answer to that. Uh, And it really has now become an absolutely scandalous situation um, for these poor people who have been five months without being able to drive in Spain. Um, Now, just I just want to clarify something you said in the introduction, Lily. Um, The the reporting that I did back in May on this, when it, you know, (laughs) we were sort of a week or two into this situation and everyone was already up in arms. And now we're five months, uh, five months later. 
and we're still in the same situation that that what you mentioned there about how it was to do with the um traffic offenses and uh, the automated system for traffic offenses and how the uk wanted that separate from this licensing exchange but spain was sort of lumping it all together that's what we understood at mm. the time the reporting was that that in may that's the hold up now all we can do at the moment is speculate, but I would suggest that that cannot yeah. possibly be the reason for this um, situation now. There must be something else going on. And obviously, it is an ongoing no negotiation. And as Hugh Elliott said, he cannot give any information about what's going on. A lot of rumours are starting starting to fly around, uh, especially on Facebook, about this must be to do with Gibraltar. Um, you know, this is something uh, somehow has got caught up in the ongoing negotiations between Spain uh, over uh, Gibraltar post-Brexit, because obviously there's some major issues there about um, cross-border mm. workers and things like that. Um, so everyone, uh, or a lot of people anyway, are speculating that it's got something to do with that. But yeah, I mean, as you said, the British ambassador pretty much came out this week and, you know, released another update, but pretty much it was just there was there was no news. When the British embassy announced in late July that the main text for an agreement to allow Brits resident in Spain to swap their licenses for Spanish ones had been agreed. Um, and then obviously there was something of a summer break. And then, of course, the Queen died and that you know meant Delayed another everything, yeah exactly yeah. i kind of put everything on hold especially obviously for the for the embassy um but uh yeah we're just left with absolutely no news and it is just people are getting so so angry and Naturally, i've been yeah. doing more reporting on this for the olive press and we invited people to send in emails with their situation and we just had a flood of emails basically uh, a woman called deb lee she contacted me to explain how the stress of this is making me ill I'm having regular migraines, panic attacks and nightmares. And now I have sciatica on top of everything else. I'm 64 and truly beginning to think this is where I'm going to die isolated depressed and alone um Jesus. we've had other emails from people who are saying you know either i've got an illness and i need to go to the hospital regularly or i have a relative that has an illness or has cancer what someone wrote to say and we can't make the um visits because obviously people are either having to mm. rely on neighbors um and in a, in a very yeah in taxis in a very british way a lot of the people that have been relying on neighbors um, and friends for help are kind of sort of saying well you know to begin with people were very helpful but now it's getting really yes. embarrassing to keep Push asking the friendship too much Exactly, yeah. Barry Harding wrote to us to say that uh, he would be upping sticks and getting out of here if the situation is not resolved. It's a disgrace, he said. We live in uh, Torrox Costa and it's a 25-minute walk just for a pint of milk. Um, there's a new group that has popped up on Facebook called Invasion of the British Embassy in Madrid. It's being um, organised by a man named Pascal. Um, he made very clear that although he's been using the word invasion, that was a sort of a way to catch attention. And there's, you know, no intention to sort of literally storm the embassy mm. or anything like that. And he also makes very clear on the page that, you know, there's no, no, uh, any sort of threats of violence or anything like that will not be condoned. 
Um, but the group is gaining a lot of traction today, Friday, uh, 30th of September. Um, a lot of the members got organized and they sent um, letters either to, you know, to the media or to their MPs if they've got MPs back in the UK or to um, the uh, embassy just trying to get something done it's got about I think it's got more than 400 members last time I looked and ironically the protest in Madrid is proving to be really difficult because a lot of people can't get to Madrid because they can't drive. Oh, I know, yes. I know. It's just like, it's just, it's, it's, it would be funny if it weren't yeah. such a, 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 a serious, horrible situation. Yeah, for them. absolutely. Um, but yeah, she, I should mention the Olive Press has been campaigning to get Brits back on the road, um, pointing people to this um, signature that's been registered with the House of Commons. It's a parliamentary petition, basically. So um, yeah, if you're interested in signing that, then we will. Um, put that in our twitter uh, thread of content from today's show and for now all we can do is wait i spoke to the embassy again this morning uh they said there was probably not going to be any update today friday i also interestingly spoke to the dgt today because they were quite forthcoming when i spoke to them in may and they said you know we we just can't understand why the brits don't want the same arrangement that we had before but today they were not at all forthcoming and in fact they directed me to speak to the interior ministry which i will do next week and just try and get some answers. Mm. I shall float the word Gibraltar in the air and see what happens. So let's move on to our second story. Now, it's always nice to see women football players getting the spotlight. There's some amazing talent in the worldwide leagues, but the game so often gets overlooked because of the dominance of the men's teams. Spain's national women's team has been in the news this last week, but unfortunately not for very positive reasons. Fifteen of the players have said that they are refusing to play under its current coach, Jorge Vilda, because they are frustrated about his approach and his style and the effect it is having on their emotional state and their health. So, Lily, tell us more about this story. It's such an interesting story. I mean, I don't really follow football closely, but I do <laughs> <Me> love... <neither. laughs> I, but don't you love these sports stories that go beyond the scores? You know, we get a bit of a glimpse behind the scenes. I mean, it's just so political. This one has, this story has so much and it's also a bit of a mystery. So the 15 players initially sent emails to the Royal Spanish Football Federation threatening to effectively resign if the current coach, Jorge Bilda, and his coaching team and methods weren't immediately reviewed. In response, the Football Federation said they would not allow the players to question the continuity of the national coach and his staff since making those decisions doesn't fall within their powers. And they continued to say the players who have submitted their resignation will only return to the national team if they accept their mistake and ask for forgiveness. So the players have followed through and have now declared themselves unavailable for selection. So a couple of takeaways on this story. I think many people reading or listening would immediately be asking, well, what on earth is happening internally for it to get to this point? 
I mean, this has become a very public and humiliating moment for the Football Federation and for the team, La Roja. Well, the players say the main issues do centre around the team's culture off the field, that being the locker room environment, the process of team selection and the behaviour of the coaching and managerial staff during training sessions. One of the team's captains, Irene Paredes, said in a statement that we believe that there are internal aspects that can change. They said they would have liked it to have stayed internal, but that information was leaked that wasn't true. She said there are times when things have to change, even though it's unpleasant. The team also say they never asked specifically for the dismissal of the coach, as has been reported. Well, whatever's been happening behind the scenes, it must be big. For 15 top players to put their careers on the line here, Mm. it must be seriously damaging, whatever this behaviour is. The players say in a statement, by requesting not to be summoned, we penalise our professional career, our economy and our work building something important in women's football. And with that in mind, the wording of the Federation's statement in response to the players' concerns is even more unbelievable. I mean, to say to players that they need to accept their mistake and ask for forgiveness, it just just seems crazy. To that point, the team say they will not tolerate the infantilizing tone with which the RFEF concludes its release. Mm -hmm. On Coach Bilder... For a coach of his international standing with this many unhappy players not to be brought into disciplinary hearings or an investigation, especially in this day and age when, you know, there is so much international media attention on on, on men in leadership in their treatment of women, it's quite significant. Vildas is obviously very well protected. It's been reported that he has the backing of the Federation president, and that's clearly why this is becoming such a sticky problem. He's on record as saying he intends to lead the team to the 2023 World Cup, and he may well. In the meantime, the team is supposed to play Sweden in Cordoba next month, But without 15 of their best players, they're going to need to pick from the youth team. And even more concerning is that World Cup is looming. It's only eight months away. Mm. And they're going to have to start making some big decisions very soon with the whole world watching. Yeah, well, that's the weirdest thing just happened. You literally started to talk and my watch flashed up a... a breaking news story from um, from El País and basically uh, Jorge Vilda has left out those 15 players from the squad the 15 players that sent the letter have been left out of the squad mm. so uh, yes <laughs> we literally had a little bit of breaking news just as we were recording uh, that section let's see what Huge. they do now they're going to have yeah. to pick from the youth team but yeah it's just, it's there's a lot going on for the Football Federation as well there was a story recently about the president Luis uh, Rubiales and he's been accused of his uncle of uh, basically embezzling money from um, the Federation to pray for, pay for private parties where there were chicas. And when I first sort of heard that, I was like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean they were prostitutes? But apparently, no, they weren't. They were just kind of like rounding up girls at nightclubs and bringing back girls to this this uh, house and uh, having these parties. Um, so it's hmm. been already been a pretty damaging few months for uh, Rubiales. But obviously, yeah, this is not going to help things at all. I think this is a Netflix movie in the making. <laughs> what would the ti- what would the title be, Lily? Uh... It would be no. In Spanish, it would be like quince chicas muy chicas or quince jugadores muy chicas or something like that it would be some terrible title I think that we play with the red the la roja (laughs) la roja la roja zona la zona roja that's what it would be the red zone
right, well, let's move on now to our interview. This week, we are talking to British actress Sarah Campbell, a long-term resident of Madrid who is one of my friends from the world of voiceovers, and she is also a singer. Now, uh, Sarah has many siblings, but you may have already heard of one of them, Anna Campbell. Anna was a British anarchist and campaigner, among many other things, and in 2018 she travelled to Rojava, a region of Syria, to fight against ISIS with the YPJ militia. While she was there, she was killed in a Turkish missile strike in March 2018. Four years later, in March 2022, Sara stepped onto a Madrid stage to portray a version of herself in the play Inanna, which was written by one of her best friends from her theatre company, which is called Baraka. The play is an often surreal experience and takes its inspiration from the Antigone myth. If you're not up on your Greek mythology, Antigone, the daughter of Oedipus, attempts to bury her brother against the king's orders. Now, as you might imagine, this play is an extraordinary emotional experience uh, if you are aware of what happened to Anna. And I freely admit I cried all the way through it when I saw it in March. I'm pleased to say that the play is going to be performed again in October which gave me the perfect excuse to catch up with Sara and try not to cry again as we chatted. Uh, I'm going to freely admit that I did burst into tears <laughs> at one point during the, uh, during the interview but for the sake of my, uh, my dignity <laughs> I've Aww. removed that part because we also started to hit the uh, microphones just at that moment so it didn't sound great anyway but um, yeah check it out this is a, a pretty amazing story. Our paths first crossed when I was in Madrid. In Madrid, yeah. I interviewed you. Yes, you did. I can't even remember why. (laughs) (laughs) But we were probably talking about similar things that we are going to talk about today. Yeah, well, I think it was for the section that we had, which was the, you know, um, people who do jobs that aren't teaching English. Yeah. I think it was that back page section that we used to do. You You had an interesting story. You have an interesting story. We're out here in El Pardo, which I've mm. never been to before. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, welcome, welcome yeah, to my neighbourhood. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for inviting me into your home. Mm. Now, uh, as I warned you before we sat down, mm. it's very unlikely that I'm going to get through this interview without crying. Sure. <laughs> I thought that and I love play, you for that, Simon. I love you for <laughs> that. I cried all the way through the play. I thought it was extraordinary. I texted you afterwards. I don't know if you remember. I texted you afterwards to say... I just don't have any words to describe what I've seen. I thought it was incredible. Hmm. And this is obviously the play is uh, inspired in the story of your sister Anna. So I thought the best thing to do is if you we can start and you can kind of briefly tell us uh, Anna's story. Okay, where to begin? So Anna was an anarchist, a feminist, um, um, and she believed in change. She believed that change was a possibility. She basically went to the north western region of Syria where the Kurds are fighting um, to for their for their land for their freedom um, they've been fighting against ISIS for a very very long time uh, they're also currently um, 
in a conflict with Turkey. Turkey has been invading for years now, um, trying to take over that northern area of Syria. There is a female militia group called the YPJ and a male militia group called the YPG that defend the Kurds, that defend Kurdistan and everything that they stand for. Um, why did Anna go and join this female militia? Because... Um, she aligned with their beliefs, which are um, feminism, um, ecology, uh, and uh, socialism. They believe that uh, revolution is possible. And she went to Syria to join the YPJ. She was basically smuggled over there. Mm. Um, it was all very underground. We weren't supposed to know about it. She did about um, eight months of training with the YPJ and then when in January 2018 uh, uh, Turkey started to heavily attack the northern border um, she jumped on a convoy to Afrin that she wasn't supposed to go. So she went and she got killed by a bomb. Mm. Yeah. And then to make the story even more tragic you were then subsequently unable to repatriate her body exactly yeah despite your best efforts i believe it was yeah well you fought for a long time to try to get my 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 dad still is fighting actually Mm. we so just after she died um we we held a big demonstration in the center of london we marched through the center of london there was absolutely no help offered by the UK embassy. I mean, this was four years ago now, so whatever is left of Anna's body is going to be very difficult mm. to to find. However, my dad is... My dad has been campaigning for the last four years. Mm. He's doing it more than anything um, so that, yeah, so that somebody holds Turkey accountable because it's mm. still, you know, it's atrocious mm. how they're behaving and, and nobody's doing anything. So to move on to the play uh, yeah. in Anna, it, how long after, what was the genesis of the idea for the play? How long after um, right. these incidents did you start to think that this could be a way for you to deal with? Simon, it wasn't me. It wasn't you? I had nothing to do with it. Really? It was my, my the director of Baraka Teatro, mm. Maria Caudevilla, who was also one of my closest friends. Mm. She... She said to me, in, I think maybe a few months after Anna had died, she asked, she said, Sarah, I'm really moved to start writing something. Mm. Um, I'm so blown away by, by what, by the whole... Story. The whole story, by who Anna was, yeah. um, by the YPJ movement, what she got involved in, and, and the fact that you guys can't, can't get her body back. Mm. She said, it's, it's Antigone. She's died in conflict... And you're not allowed to give her the burial that she deserves mm. because of political reasons. Mm. So explain to me how the process was of writing uh, of writing the play. It was Maria, you said, yeah? Mm. Is it Maria that it was Maria, Maria Caldevilla. She knew about things through the family. There were so many um, uh, newspaper stories that came out when Anna died. Mm. You know, it was just, it was so, her, her, her death was so public mm. There was lots of information in the newspaper, so I think Maria found things there. There's this beautiful book that Anna's friends put together where letters were written to Anna. Mm. We shared in this in this little book, we shared, I shared uh, 
a poem that I'd written. My sister Sophia shared a letter that Anna had written to her baby. Sophia's baby. Sophia was pregnant when Anna left. Mm. And the night before she left, <clears throat> she wrote a letter to, to the baby saying, baby, I don't know you, but... Um, but you need to know, you, you need to know that I'm going, that I don't want to die. It's not my intention. Um, it's this really clearly moving letter. Um, lots of things like that. And so there was lots of stuff that Maria was able to co- collect. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and lots of that went into the play. And how on earth did you feel the first time you read it? It took me a long time to read it. Um, I sat down, I lit my candle for Anna, um, and I had a beer as well. <laughs> I'll admit. I would have chosen whiskey, but hey. I sat down with a candle and a beer. Um, yeah, and I and I cried. Um, and I was blown away by how much of it, how much of real life she'd put onto, you know, she'd put onto the pages of the script. Um, and as an actress, mm. looking at that script and, and, and you know, obviously the role was written for you, I assume. Well, this is interesting. At first, Maria wanted me to play Anna. And I just thought, how the hell am I going to do that? Yeah. I don't know. I don't... I, what? Like, it was, it was very... Very strange. Um, it, it took the whole thing took a good few months for me to find a way to actually do it. And after rehe- after about a week of rehearsals, I was I was supposed to be Anna. Maria was going to be Antigone. Mm. We started, and Maria called me up and she said, "Sara, I need to step out. I can't direct. Mm. Um, I don't think I can I can do this." And I said, "Good, because I don't think I can do Anna. So what are mm. we doing?" Um, and we reshuffled. She decided to step out. I became the sister, which, mm. of course, was was, you. was me. So it was much easier for me to connect, you mm. know, as an actress mm. um, with that character. And then we brought in Katia Humenjik, mm. um, who plays Anna. Did you ever think, I, I'm just not going to be able to do this? I, yeah. I, I mean, it must have been the first... How did you feel the first time... You actually performed it in front of an audience. I was so nervous. Mm. But, but did you think I? Did, was there any time that you thought I'm not going to be able to hold this yeah. together? Yeah. Yeah, I did say to Maria, I don't know if I can do this mm. because I feel like I'm every time I go into rehearsals, I'm just kind of digging up the pain. Um, and something that changed that for me was I spoke to my brother, and he said, my brother Adam said to me, Sarah, I'm so proud of you for doing this play and I'm so happy that you get to connect with Anna on a daily basis because I don't he said that he didn't feel that he was doing that it you know I was speaking to my therapist and saying you know I don't know if I can do this and he said Sarah this is your way of grieving there's nothing wrong with what you're doing I had lots of doubts I said I thought are people going to judge me think that I'm doing this because I want people to say, oh, poor Sarah, you know, oh, poor thing, when, you know, there's so, you know, I've got so many siblings. No, I don't think that's... Um, I don't think it would have crossed anyone's mind. Um, and he said, Sarah, this is, this is your way of grieving, and I realised... Through oh, your art. Yeah, you're, you're right, and we do grieve through art. Mm. Singers, songwriters, artists, painters, 
Yeah, it's what we do. And yeah, and just going back to your co um, your co star Katerina, <laughs> yeah. uh, the fact that she's from Ukraine. I'm trying to think if this was back in March. Was was it just after the invasion? I guess. Yeah. It must have been, you know, I guess for her it must be quite a challenge now as well, considering the circumstances in the world around her, to be acting in a yeah. in a play like this that is so related it, to conflict and to war. I mean, has she talked was. about that? I mean, it was, for her, it was just, you know, like, the world sort of fell up Her world fell apart in the middle of the rehearsal process. Oh, my goodness. And I remember the day she walked in to rehearsals in the morning and she was kind of quiet and a little bit grumpy and she just sat down and we all just sort of stopped and realised, like, mm. oh, my God, for her, this is this mm. is her family, you know, this is her life, this is her childhood, this is everything. And she sat down and she said, today I feel like a Kurd. So she felt like she finally understood mm. the injustice. Yeah the injustice that they were suffering and what they were fighting for. And did it affect her in terms of, of performing in the play? I mean, did, did you, do you think she found it more challenging from that moment on? It actually brought a lot more truth right. to her performance. Mm. Um, Katerina is... She's, actually, she's a dancer. Mm. This is the first time she's been uh, taken on as an actress. Mm. Um, and so she hasn't had that much experience, but she's amazing. She's incredible. And I think... Um, yeah, this the war in Ukraine has helped her to yeah to bring truth to 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 Inanna. Mm. Um, yeah, bless her. She's she's been holding her shit together as well. Yeah, more than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, congratulations yeah. again, Sarah. I. I just I think it's extraordinary. I hope that people people are able to go and see it. I hope that you do get more of a chance to to perform yeah. it. It's an extraordinary tribute to uh, a person who sounds like she was extraordinary in many many aspects. Mm. So congratulations! Thank you so much Thank for your you. time. And you. yeah, I'm just about got through the interview. You with did. That. Well done. <laughs> with one big wobble. So <laughs> <laughs> just one. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. We did it. <laughs> Fuck it out, man. Well done, bless you. Jesus Christ. So, an incredible story. Wow. What did you think, Lily? So moving and, yes, I completely understand what she was saying about using art to move through grief. It's, it's hard to explain and... I haven't been able to stop painting since my dad died last year, so I get that completely. But she was so vulnerable and, t t you know, telling you exactly how she was feeling, worrying about what it looked like when she started, you know, working on this play. I thought how beautiful and generous for her to share her story with the world and also so special for the Kurdish community to have support in such an unlikely form. Absolutely. And in fact, I think I don't think this I think I turned off the recorder, but there were actually members of the Kurdish community that came to see the play when she performed it back in March and they were just completely mm. blown away. I mean, I really used overused the word extraordinary in that interview and in my introduction. But for me, there's just no other way to put it. So, yeah, if you can. 
can get to see uh, the show. It's on the 8th of October at the Festival Ibero Americano de Teatro Contemporaneo de Almagro. That's quite a mouthful. That is uh, at the Municipal Theatre in uh, Almagro, which is in Ciudad Real. And it's also on the 15th of October uh, at the Teatro Municipal in Tres Cantos. There's also a GoFundMe um, uh, page to help stage the show. We'll put the link to that in our Twitter thread and also um, the dates as well of the of the shows. But I mean, if you Google GoFundMe, Anna Campbell and Inanna, you will find it there. Oh, and just adding to the cultural guide this week, yesterday I was invited to the premiere of Tim Burton's Labyrinth exhibition in Delicias in Madrid. It's huge. It's a big circus tent and you pass through doors that take you into different Tim Burton worlds. So there were rooms of Edward Scissorhands, Alice in Wonderland, Beetlejuice, Nightmare Before Christmas, all the ones, all the big ones, you know. And in each room you see his original sketches of the characters. It's really wonderful and like everything he does, the lighting, the music, the production quality is really high level. So I definitely recommend if you're in Madrid this week or you're visiting, um, Go check it out. It's amazing. You and the boys should go for sure. We'll add that also to the Twitter thread this week. Excellent. All right, then. Well, all that is left now is Lily's roundup of the other news that caught our eye. Police Commissioner Jose Manuel Villarejo appeared before the National High Court for the start of his sentencing this week. The 71-year-old is accused of secretly recording conversations with top business people to blackmail them or damage their reputation for other wealthy clients. He is said to have abused his position to access police data in return for millions of euros. After almost a year of hearings, this is the end of the first trial against him, of which there are many. The magistrates will now uh, study the evidence and come back with their sentence in the next few weeks. In terrifying news, there's been a spate of attacks on boats off Spain and Portugal's Atlantic coasts by killer whales. More than 300 incidents have been recorded in the last two years and there are differing opinions about why the mammals are attacking the boats between competition for food or habitat. And a bizarre story for you now, one of Europe's largest and most endangered saltwater lagoons, Mar Menor, in the southeast of Spain, close to Murcia, has been protected by Spain's Senate after a vote was held which granted the ecosystem legal status as a person. The Guardian writes the lagoon has been polluted by poor sewerage systems, fertilisers and discharge from mining activity in recent years. This new legislation now codifies the lagoon's right to exist as an ecosystem and to evolve naturally while recognising its right to protection, conservation and restoration by residents and government. And lastly, to a story we read this week which seemed like it was in the wrong decade or century. A comedy bullfighting show in Madrid starring little people called Popeye Torero has been cancelled after a campaign to stop it. The show outraged disability advocate groups who obviously said it was keeping alive a mockery that comes from Spain in black and white. Only 37 tickets were sold in the first place. I can't even believe this idea was floated to begin with. Don't you think it's crazy, Simon? <laughs> Bulls and dwarfs. Oh what could God. possibly go wrong? It's supposed to be very Jesus. funny. 
but no, I think I'll give that a miss. Thank you very yes. much. let's wrap it up there then our first episode from this second season of La Portada podcast this episode was recorded on September the 30th in the city of Madrid your hosts were Lily Mayers and me Simon Hunter and providing technical support and armchair punditry was Connor Doyle please subscribe to the podcast leave us a review on your podcast provider and give us some money on Patreon <laughs> all we want is a relaxing cup of coffee for later we are not asking much. Hey, we also love seeing where you're listening to the podcast from. Tweet us or tag us on Instagram or Twitter from wherever you're listening and send us a voice message if you have any comments or suggestions for the show. We'd love to hear from you. Our socials are at La Portada Pod and our email is laportadapod at gmail.com. You can also tweet us directly at Simon in Madrid and at Lily Mayers. Just a quick note to say... Just hours before we recorded today's episode, my beloved Spanish abuelo Alejandro Bruce Ruggeri passed away at 92. He was a big fan of the show and he loved everything about Spain, his home. Just last week, he was sending out recommendations for restaurants and tapas and towns to visit. For that reason, I would like to dedicate today's episode to him. He's the reason I'm here and he's the reason I stay. I love you, abuelo. Te acompaño en el sentimiento. Mm.